For eight consecutive nights, people in Tehran have defied authorities to protest over the death of Masa Amini. The 22-year-old died in custody last week after being arrested by so-called morality police. She'd allegedly violated the country's policy on headscarves. The women who are at the heart of this protest continue to defy the authorities, burning headscarves, cutting their hair and walking in the streets of the capital without a hijab. Across Russia, there's a growing sense of alarm, even anger, at the call-up of reservists to fight in Ukraine. A victory for the far right. Georgia Maloney is set to become Italy's first female prime minister. It's Monday, September 26, 2022, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today. And I'm glad to report that I'm joined by our full complement of Goodfellows. That would include the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. They are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. John Cochran, we're going to start with you today because we're going to go across the pond to Great Britain where the funeral is over and now England is back to business, which means that Liz Truss, the new British Prime Minister, has come out with what we would call Trussonomics. John, can you briefly take us through what Liz uh, Truss's plan is to restore the British economy? <laughs> well, we'll see. There's a campaign plan and that's where there's what's starting to get going and we'll see where it ends up. Um, uh, the left has proclaimed a, a new funeral for the UK economy, I think, much too quickly. Um, she came in that there's a, if you look, I looked up on political, there's 160 points they summarized about her campaign pledges. So we'll see where it goes. The headlines, are, of course, are not tax cuts, but scrapping uh, planned tax increases, uh, which uh, the left predictably went nuts about. Um, and and uh, But I think under the headline is a program for deregulation uh, going forward, which is, I think, much more interesting. Uh, the tax cuts are small. Come on, guys, 45% uh, down to 40% um, yeah, on the top uh, marginal income tax rate. Um, you know, this isn't Reaganomics who cut it from 70% to 28%. Uh, I looked up uh, a little bit on taxes. You know, the idea that England is now, UK is now a, a undertaxed country is kind of funny. Uh, government spending is still 50% of GDP. Somebody somewhere is paying half their income in taxes. Uh, on top of the now 40% giveaway to the rich, <laughs> Uh, there's also a 20% value-added tax, 10% to the 10% uh, to uh, fund the um, uh, health insurance scheme, uh, and and so on and so forth. So um, these are small, uh, really, in the big scheme of things, uh, although very significant. Uh, the idea that you, pr her idea is we're going to get back to growth by removing the distortions of taxes and by getting rid of a lot of. Um, a, a lot of regulations that are standing in the way of growth. One of the unnoticed things I, I, I saw was a plan, I don't know if it's enacted yet, that all of the uh, EU regulations that had automatically been adopted by the UK, now we're going to be scrapped unless the UK parliament votes them back in again. Uh, so this kind of thing going on under the uh, high scenes, I think is, is the uh, relevant thing. Now, of course, she started in office with this ridiculous idea uh, to cap um, energy prices. Uh, which, you know, printing up money to pay, to, to make people not see the, the calamitous effects of previous energy policies. I don't think that's as, as bad as seen, though. Uh, for, the, for the U.S., uh, price controls are, are going to lead to lines. For the U.K., it just means they're going to import more energy uh, from other places rather than other stuff. Um, so I, I, I don't see it as, as quite the huge 
macroeconomic, we need more austerity now, given that you're spending 50% of GDP uh, already. So the average tax rate's 50%. Uh, and I, I think the smaller stuff, which I hope Neil is more is on top of as well, uh, coming in the future is going to be more significant. Neil? Well, I'm sure, John, that there are long-run benefits uh, to what's been done. And uh, I'm not going to argue against uh, lower taxes uh, on a Goodfellas show. But the short run is the problem uh, for Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. There's a reason markets are dumping sterling so aggressively that it's now very close to parity with the dollar. And I think it has as much to do with monetary policy as it has to do with fiscal policy. I, mean, I think the fiscal uh, problem is that if you add it all up, you're doing a pretty big deficit binge uh, divided between tax cuts and, and, and subsidies to offset higher energy prices. But then you've got the Bank of England, which has been behind the curve in a, in a way that makes the Fed look credible. And they they blew it again last week by delivering only 50 basis points instead of instead of the expected 75 basis points. It's a pretty dovish monetary policy committee. It looks increasingly uh, like a less than credible governor in Andrew Bailey, and that I think is a big part of the problem. You've got the combination of an easy money policy and a and a fiscal uh, relatively easy money policy and a and a fiscal splurge. At a time when the U, uh, when the UK economy is already in uh, in obvious difficulties, and I, I don't think there's an easy way out here. I mean, the bank might do an emergency rate hike. I don't think they will. They just issued a very lame statement this week. I think they're just going to let sterling take the strain, and hope that the inflationary consequences uh, of this devaluation aren't too aren't too bad. Uh, if they were to try and tighten monetary policy more aggressively, I think that would really uh, throw a lot of uh, a lot of very cold water on, on the UK consumer, mainly through the mortgage channel. So it's a mess and uh, a great time uh, for our American listeners to plan that vacation in the UK because you'll be you'll be really uh, suddenly feeling like uh, like a, a yank uh, at the time of World War Two with uh, all the money. Uh, it's 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 kind of fascinating to watch this. I'm not sure how well this plays out. Liz Truss has sold herself as the reincarnation of Margaret Thatcher, but you may remember Boris Johnson was the reincarnation of Winston Churchill, and how did that turn out? And my sense is that this is much less like the Thatcher years and much more like the disastrous boom and bust that Anthony Barber caused when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer back in the early 1970s. Well, I, I just want to say, like, if I can get this book manuscript done by February, I'm going to Six Nations, and this makes it even more attractive. So you there? <laughs> yeah, you, you'll have money in your pocket, but it'll be—it's going to be cold in the uh, hotel. <laughs> that, that's right. Yeah, bring three very warm sweaters with you. <laughs> so, question, gentlemen, you're not planning your weekend trip to go shop at Burberry's in uh, London. Um, Thatcher, remember, for the 80s, famously saying the lady is not for turning. This is in reaction to her uh, talking about expected for her to do a U-turn on her policies, as though she says she's not for turning. Neil H.R. John, what do we know about Liz Truss in the way of toughness? Do, do, we, do we know that she is an iron lady, or is this a work in progress? Hey, I, I feel pretty good about it. Remember, she, you know, she went to, 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 to uh, Moscow you know, and and uh, and the Russians tried to embarrass her, to belittle her uh, when she was the foreign minister. 
And I think that was that was a searing experience for her, as well as all of us who are witnessing the, the horrors in, in Ukraine. So mm-hmm. I feel pretty good about continuity in British foreign policy. What I would like to see is more investment in in UK defense capabilities and capacity. I mean, the the, the British military has just shrunk to uh, to to an extraordinary degree, in, in which the, it's still an extremely valuable member of the NATO alliance and, and 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 an important actor from a military perspective internationally, but it just doesn't have uh the the amount of force necessary to make a difference in, in deterrence and, and and if necessary responding to crises. Mm-hmm. Neil? The problem's not Liz Truss. I mean Liz Truss is I'm sure going to stick to her guns. She knows that that's the only way uh that she can possibly proceed. It's the parliamentary party, the Conservative parliamentary party that is for turning. Uh, they turned against Boris Johnson when he seemed to have become a political liability. Mm-hmm. There are those who think that they'll turn against uh, Liz Truss. Uh, we, we're developing a kind of revolving door in number 10 Downing Street rather than the more conventional door. And and I've heard speculation, I heard it even before Sterling fell off a cliff, that she might be gone by Valentine's Day next year. So that's what, what, what will do the turning, not the prime minister, but the parliamentary party and the revolving door in number 10. Is that a segue mm-hmm. to Italian politics? After John gets this word, go ahead, John. Character, but you that's necessary, but you also need the possibility to exercise that character. So yes, will the conservatives stick with her? Will the uh, UK voters stick with the conservatives at the next election? Uh, That's the big issue. But remember, back to I'll play historian. Both Thatcher and Reagan did not sail into office, uh, wave a wand, deregulate lower taxes, and economies boomed. They both went through very difficult early years. In fact, I was just rereading um, Tom Sargent, uh, an economist, wrote an economic account of uh, Thatcher's early years where he thought it was all going to fall apart because she would not be able to uh, stick to it through the inevitable recession, tough, tough times. The All of the forces uh, of the, the media intelligentsia uh, professional economists arrayed against her are, are going to be tough. So she will need character and she will need uh, possibility. Yeah, fair point, John. And it's worth remembering that the last time sterling was this low against the dollar was when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister back in 1985. One final question about England, then we'll move on to Italy. Neil, what exactly is the winter of discontent in Great Britain? Well, this is a phrase uh, redolent of the darkest days of the 1970s when uh, the UK economy was still uh, gripped by recurrent strike action. Uh, and and so the winter of discontent is often seen as the the prelude uh, to the Thatcher premiership. Uh, it was uh, it was after that that she was elected uh, prime minister, and of course it meant that she started off uh, with with a feeling that things really had to change. Uh, and that the the politics of the 1970s had produced this unsustainable mess of high inflation uh, and recurrent strike action. The situation for Liz Truss is completely different because she's coming into power when the Tories have been themselves in power since 2010. It's a lot harder to claim that you're going to uh, transform uh, policy if your own party's been in charge of it for the last 
12 years. Remember also that Margaret Thatcher became prime minister winning a general election handily uh, and Liz Truss is only prime minister because she won a majority of, of votes uh, from uh, Tory party members. If there were a general election today, it's pretty clear that the Labour Party would win it. So politically, this isn't the winter of discontent. There may be a winter of discontent coming in Britain, and I think that's highly likely given the inflationary pressures and the big increases that people are going to see uh, in their in their energy bills and probably their mortgages if they've if they've got adjustable mortgages. So we we could be looking at winter of discontent too. But this time, uh, a female Tory prime minister will be in power and will get the blame. Okay. Uh, let's shift now to Italy, and uh, Italy now has a new prime minister. It appears the people of Italy going to the polls this weekend. Her name is Giorgia Maloney. She is 45 years old, and she is a leader of the Brothers of Italy Party and John Neal in HR. The media have just having a field day with one word here, which is fascism. Uh, she is arguably the most right of center PM Italy will have had since Benito Mussolini. There's a historic parallel here. Uh, next month marks 100 years since Mussolini's march on Rome and the rise of fascism in Italy. Uh, uh, Neil, uh, is Italy going to start putting on black shirts and marching around like 1922, or are we having a little bit of an overreaction here? No, uh, it's it's not uh, black shirt time or march on Rome too at all. I think if you if you read the New York Times, of course, uh, it's always uh, the rise of fascism somewhere in the world, isn't it? Yes. Uh, the Fratelli d'Italia is not a direct lineal descendant of Mussolini's party. Uh, it's one of those parties that uh, has been identified with the, the cultural right in Italy. And if you listen to Maloney, she talks about family, she talks about church. Uh, she's an absolutely classic cl culture war politician, in that, in that sense, quite a modern figure. If you look at the policy detail, uh, in fact, she's uh, a good deal less radical uh, than uh, Matteo Salvini, uh, the leader of another right-wing populist party, the Lega. Uh, Salvini, if you remember, when he was doing well politically a few years ago, was anti-Europe uh, in, in a pretty combative way to the point of implying that he might take Italy out of the Euro. Uh, Maloney's not at all in that uh, vein. She's uh, distinctly centrist on economic policy. Uh, and she's also far from rocking the boat on Ukraine policy, whereas Salvini has uh, often sounded like he's uh, distinctly pally uh, with Vladimir Putin, uh, like Silvio Berlusconi. Uh, that is not at all Maloney's line. Uh, so I think uh, that this, this is to misrepresent her, to imply that somehow the fascists are, are in power in Italy. Uh, if you listen to a recent speech she gave, uh, I, I actually was rather impressed by it, especially when she got to the quotation from G.K. Chester. So culture war is really what this is about. She's there uh, campaigning for traditional values and using language that you might very well expect to hear from Ron DeSantis, the governor of, of Florida. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'll, I'll chime in next, uh, and uh, even more so than Neil. This charge of fascist is just ridiculous, and the left does bring it around. Fascism had a coherent ideology, which was the ideology of we need one big man or at the time, man, could be woman now, to run things. You don't hear a word uh, about that, not even out of Trump, uh, a coherent ideology of, of the dictator needs to run things, that Congress is too slow, I need to issue edicts. Uh, that's, that doesn't come from Trump, that comes from other places. 
Uh, and it certainly doesn't come from Georgia Maloney. If we're going to go to historical roots of parties, uh, let me remind the New York Times, the Democratic Party is the party of insurrection. It's the party of the Confederacy. It's the party of Jim Crow. It was into the 1950s, the party of segregation now and, and forever. Uh, how do you like those historical roots? Let's look at where we are currently. Uh, currently, yes, um, uh, Ms. Maloney is fighting the culture war and the immigration issue. This is one that's not going to go away in Europe and I think drives a lot of what's going on. And not just immigration. I'm all for immigration, but immigration by single men, immigration without assimilation, immigration by single men who come and are either not allowed to work or, or, or live on the streets and don't assimilate. This is a disaster in Europe as our entire immigration system is a disaster in the US. And the, the peasants with pitchforks are, are rising up with it. And culturally, you know, this sounds like Christian Democrats, <laughs> not like fascists. Uh, the idea that that uh, family and traditional values and anti-wokeism, uh, another thing that the disparaged uh, peasants with pitchforks don't like. So that's a, that's a very centrist uh, program as far as policy and really throwing around the fascist label is, is it, 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 it devalues how horrible fascism actually was to throw around that label at anybody to the to the uh, left of to the right of Bernie Sanders. HR question for you. Silvio Berlusconi was also on the ballot in Italy. He is running for a Senate seat. Uh, he's relevant in this conversation because it's his Forza Italia uh, party is a junior partner of the coalition led by Maloney's party. Uh, Berlusconi turns 86 this week, so I guess he's getting maybe a little too old in the tooth for bunga bunga parties. Uh, but yet here he is on Italian television, HR, he said the following, quote, Vladimir Putin, quote, Putin was pushed by the Russian population, by his party and by his ministers to invent this special operation. The troops were supposed to enter, reach Kiev within a week, replace Zelensky's government with decent people and then leave. Instead, they found resistance, which was then fed by arms of all kinds from the West. HR, is Berlusconi living out of his own island or is there any appetite for this uh, conspiracy theory in Europe? Well, there, there's an appetite for it, clearly, but it's only in fringe parties, you know, and Maloney's not part of that, which is good. I mean, I really feel good about about what her foreign policy is, is going to be. Uh, and and I, I do think that there is this affinity among some far right or nativist and uh, parties in, in Europe uh, for Putin because they see him as as the way he liked to portray himself. Right. As the uh, as the often shirtless. Uh, defender of of uh, of Christianity and and Western culture, but but now it's it's so clear, right, that, that the greatest threat uh, to Europe, you know, the greatest threat to peace is, is Vladimir Putin, and so Berlusconi he is on an island, you know, and 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 when people bandy about the, the terms like fascism, I mean, I think it's important to to recognize what what it is, right? It's the it's the centralization of authority under a dictat dictatorial government. Okay, Italy is pretty damn far from that, right? And and uh, and then also it includes you know the violent suppression of any opposition. And and what I think we've seen in Italy is is a an ugly at times, but a thriving democratic system of of governance. And and this is where I think we ought to all maybe you know bolster our confidence a little bit. And I know we'll talk probably about this a little bit a little bit later, but you know authoritarianism is brittle, right? And, and democracies are are resilient, and and democracies from afar. And when you, you read headlines, you think, man, things are really bad. And when you when you just a few months ago, you know, if we were to look at at China and Russia on the eve of the Beijing Olympics, you, you would think that while they look strong relative to us, and they're declaring their victory in this new era of international uh, relations. Uh, so, so I, I think that we ought we ought to be confident 
even as we look at the ugliness of, of uh, you know, of of, uh, of Italy's parliamentary system, and and uh, and and of course, with Maloney, uh, maybe uh, we'll see if she lasts five years, right? <laughs> nobody lasts I mean, five. Nobody lasts five years in in uh, in, in Italy. So, uh, but but hopefully, Italy can gain strength and and marginalize these kind of fringe parties like Berlusconi's. And he's, you know, his time has has come and gone. Let me tell you, though, Italy has a huge economic problem. Italy has not grown since 2010. Even the UK looks like an economic growth engine compared to Italy right now. Uh, it has proved incapable of reform. So <clears throat> I, I certainly hope uh, Ms. Meloni uh, hangs out a little bit with Liz Truss or Pierre Polivier of Canada or, or the nascent, uh, the beginning to listen to, hey, we need some supply side reform here and get this thing growing because uh, Italy is also going to have, uh, if not economic problems, just this continued slow decay. So can I ask you guys a question uh, for for uh, for John and Neil? So you, 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 know, you had Draghi, right? I mean, he was the, if, if you're going to put somebody in charge of a failing economy, that's that's the guy you would pick, right? So, you know, what happened? Why, why did first of all, why did they lose faith in in Draghi? And then, what do you think Maloney could do differently from what Draghi, who re really, I, I think, if you look at a, at, a, at an expert, right, and, and maybe turning around an economy and 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 uh, and reasonable fiscal policy uh, was was voted out, or, or at least the coalition collapsed underneath him. Well, I was just in Italy. I was just in Italy, HR, a few weeks ago, and uh, it, it was to me kind of puzzling that Italy would ditch Mario Draghi just as an economic storm was going to break. Seems like the wrong time to get rid of somebody with that much international credibility, the former ECB uh, president, the man often seen as having saved the euro during the financial crisis. And I think the answer to the question is that the Italian political class just couldn't bear being relegated to irrelevance. Uh, a year ago, it felt as if Italy was a monarchy uh, with King Mario in charge and the usual political players essentially uh, reduced to entertainment uh, value. And I think ultimately the political class could not take it anymore. And uh, with Berlusconi playing an important part, uh, they basically pulled the rug out from underneath Draghi and, and forced these elections to happen. What can they do with this mandate that they've won? I think that's a really tough question. And it's interesting to me that the campaigners focus so much on cultural issues. I think that's because economically, it's extremely difficult to know what to do, given the problems that John alluded to. You've got this very large public debt. Uh, you're constrained in monetary policy by your membership of the euro. And the structural reforms that you really need to do are going to be, by definition, unpopular with significant groups, uh, public employees, unionized workers, etc. So I think the truth of the matter is this will not be a strong government. There already are obvious divisions between uh, uh, Maloney and Salvini, and I expect they'll be jockeying for position uh, as these coalition negotiations unfold. I suspect none of this solves Italy's economic problem, uh, but it does show that culture war politics works in an election. And this, I think, is a lesson for the British Tories. Uh, when I was last in London, I was talking to a bunch of people who are now involved in that government. And I said, you guys don't talk much about the culture war issues. You know, you don't really spend much time complaining about wokeism. Uh, you, you still tend to focus on, on economic issues. It almost feels like I'm in a time machine and I'm back in the early 80s. And they said, well, these culture war issues aren't very politically relevant here. People are interested in, in taxes. They're interested in, in bread and butter issues. 
We'll see about that. My sense is that, that betting uh, the, the future of the Conservative Party on a version of 1980s economics might not turn out to be so electorally smart. And, and you know, let's, uh, a question now is for U.S. politics here. So if you look at the Italian election, the uh, Italian Democratic Party ran on a very simple message, quote, alarm for democracy. At the same time, Maloney was uh, running very strong on issues like secure borders, no to mass migration, no to bureaucrats in Brussels. Neil, what are the take homes uh, for American politics here? If you're the U.S. Democratic Party, do you, are you learned by what happened in Italy or is U.S. and Italian politics just too far apart? Well, I think the way in which she campaigns is slightly different from uh, the way you described it. And part of her appeal is to traditional family values, family, family uh, church, uh, nation, and, and against, uh, and she's very explicit about this, against the kind of ideology that would blur gender distinctions, that would emphasize the cosmopolitan over the national. Uh, and, and that kind of argument, which I would call culturally conservative, is very powerful. And it's it's a successful part of politics in other, Europe in other European countries too. It's central to what Viktor Orban does uh, in Hungary. And I think it does work in the United States rather well. Uh, and I suspect that that's why uh, Ron DeSantis is going to be one of the strongest players, uh, the strongest contenders when it comes to 2024, because he's mastered this kind of politics. He's much better at that kind of discourse than Donald Trump, who increasingly is self-obsessed and retrospective and just wants to ramble on at rallies about why he really won in 2020, which is frankly not even the most ardent QAnon uh, Trump supporting types want to hear. Hey, just if I could just interject something here, I, I think also for Maloney, the strength for her, it, it wasn't a holier than thou campaign, right? She didn't say, hey, I'm right. All of you are, are, are screwed up. I mean, she her her personal story was quite compelling in terms of where she came from. You know, the story that she would tell that, that was relevant to an important cultural issue of, of abortion was that her mother was going to abort her until the last moment. And so she doesn't condemn people uh, who are seeking abortion, but she says, hey, I, I think we should look for any kind of alternative to that. We ought to, we ought to be more supportive uh, in society uh, for, 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 the, uh, for those who are struggling with, with a pregnancy, for example. So I just think that she was a compelling figure. And what's interesting to me is, you know, here you have really two very strong women, right, who are coming into, into, uh, into the prime ministerships of their countries. And and in Italy, the first one since like you know since since Italy was unified in 1861, and instead of extolling what a great victory this is, on the left you have people criticizing them, you know, and and trying to label them as either inept or, or inadequate in Liz Truss's case or a fascist, right? In, in Maloney's case, so I just think it's it's an interesting double standard, and and, uh, and, and it needs to be called out because I think both of these leaders are going to surprise in terms of their effectiveness. I just want to take issue also with Neil's idea that the only economics that are actually going to save our countries are dim, are hopeless as a, as a uh, political uh, issue. You know, great politicians don't just listen to what voters say and assemble something that, that doesn't. They lead. Uh, Reagan and Thatcher were able to explain to average voters how uh, what we're going to do is going to make us all better off and and turn those into issues that average voters would vote for. Uh, so I, right now, it's not very salient, but um, 
you know, I think give Liz, Liz Truss has basically two years to explain to the average voter in the way that Reagan and Thatcher were able to do. Uh, I'm very interested by this guy, Polygar in Canada, who's going around explaining to average voters uh, how um, e economic standard economic freedom ideas are going to make the whole country better off. So let's let's not give up on, on leadership in democratic societies and just view politicians as, as assembling a list of prejudices that gets them elected. But fiscal responsibility was always part of Thatcherism. And if one looks back at the early years of Thatcher, she didn't just cut taxes. Actually, she put taxes up uh, in order to try and stabilize Britain's fiscal position. And I'm really very wary of people who say this is Thatcherism 2.0. It's not. Thatcher would never have taken the risk that the Conservative government took last week. I, I'm quite clear about that. Notice also this is a very inexperienced cabinet probably the least experienced in modern times. Whereas Thatcher, when she won, had a cabinet full of more, many more experienced people than her, often people who had opposed her, but nevertheless had experience. I think it will turn out to be one of the big mistakes that Liz Truss has made, that she's got rid of experience and brought in only loyalists. Again, not a Thatcher move. Let's turn our attention to a third woman. Her name is Masa Amini. She is a 22-year-old Iranian woman who died in a hospital three days after being apprehended by her country's morality police and taken to a quote-unquote re-education center. Her crime was not abiding by the state's hijab rules. Uh, gentlemen, this uh, since uh, her death, there have been protests across Iran. I believe we're in day 10 or 11 right now of the protest. Not the first time Iran has seen massive protests. It's also not the first time we've seen uh, movements against the uh, hijab policy. HR, what if anything is different this time around? A number of things are different, right? So, so uh, there are continuities and, and differences. There are continuities in previous sort of uh, pro pro protests and uh, the, that we've seen. Two thousand nine, of course, were, were massive protests in, in Iran, and then and then really even even as recently as two thousand eighteen, some very significant protests across the country. And as you might recall, uh, after the killing of Soleimani, and then the Iranians shot down an airliner, uh, th there were protests there as, as well. Uh, but what what is what has been different about this is it's being sustained over multiple days and it's national, it's widespread, and and uh, so far, you know, the IRGC and the Basij, right, the you know sort of the the Iranian brown shirts who are called out to to beat down and and kill uh, protesters and intimidate them have been unable to stop it, and and I think that what you have is a corrupt regime. Uh, that has been determined to extend and tighten its grip on power at at the expense of the Iranian people, and to continue to you know to it's it's you know four decades long proxy wars uh, against its Arab neighbors in Israel, the United States, and 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 others. And so I, I think the people are tired of it, and 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 this this tragedy of this woman's death who was beaten to death. Uh, you know, for not wearing a job properly uh, has, has been an important spark here. And I think that, you know, I think that stability in Iran is a myth, right? And and um, and, and and I think this could be the beginning of the end. And of course, you know, it's it's a, it's going out on a limb to predict the end of an authoritarian regime because they always surprise us, right? Whether it's the Kim family regime in North Korea or, you know, or or uh, Maduro in, in Venezuela, they, these these states look like impossible. Like, how could it survive? Uh, but I do think that there is tremendous diversity in, in, in Iran and a very rich culture that is inconsistent with the theocratic dictatorship. And I think we're seeing the beginning of the end of that dictatorship. Mm -hmm. Neil? Well, I wish that were true. 
I mean, from your lips to God's ears, HR. The trouble is that this <laughs> regime has, if anything, a, a larger uh, and more uh, powerful repressive apparatus than it's ever had. Uh, the sheer numbers that they can deploy uh, against demonstrators are the thing uh, that, that make, make me somewhat pessimistic. I would love nothing better than for this disgusting regime to be swept from power. Uh, but we, we've, we've seen, as Bill said, demonstrations before, and we've also had to watch with, uh, with anguish as they've, been, as they've been crushed. It takes an awful lot of courage uh, to, to confront uh, the theocratic fascists in the way that so many women and men have been doing in, in cities all over Iran uh, in, in the past uh, days. But the key issue in any situation like this is, is not are there crowds in the street. The history lesson is as follows, that the revolution uh, succeeds, the regime falls when its security forces divide uh, and, and turn at least partly against it. And I'm not yet seeing that happening in Iran. Until I see some signs that the various forms of secret police, until I see the re repressive apparatus begin to unravel, then I won't believe that dawn has finally broken in Iran. Alas. If I could just interject, first of all, you know, I, I agree completely with you. You know, I, I'm being maybe overly optimistic here, but but I think also what's significant is is really that Look at the scale on the map like we had to in Ukraine, right? It's tough for the Iranian regime to maintain security in all of Iran. And you see the Kurdish groups now who are who are, who are actually armed, uh, which is different from what most of the country, um, are, are, are taking advantage of this opportunity. So you're absolutely right. We need to watch it. We need to look for some really critical indicators of, I think, Indicator number one is fissures within the security apparatus. Do we see any any shift uh, in the security apparatus, at least against the government, or at least not carrying out the orders to brutally suppress uh, these protests. And if I could add, um, between the security apparatus and the others who support the regime, when do they stop believing their own propaganda? I mean, the, the, the fall of the Soviet Union was classic. It was clear that nobody believed it anymore, that it was rot. And then there comes a moment when there is, I'll go halfway between you guys, uh, if there's a crowd of a thousand and the police are willing to shoot 10 of them, the crowd disperses and it's over. Uh, when does it fall apart? When there's a crowd of a million and the, the, the soldier ordered to shoot into the crowd says, I'm not shooting at, at women who, because they don't, and because I know it's empty. I know how horrible it is to, that, you know, to base or to shoot people because they won't put something on their head. Uh, and then that's, that's the balance of forces, but that's, what I'm, what I'm curious if both of you uh, have, have, you know, to what extent is this understanding that it's a rotten regime, that it's ideological foundations, you know, do the security forces still believe in what they're doing? Uh, are we at the moment when, when a soldier could be confronted with a large crowd and say, I'm not shooting into that crowd, and then it all unravels? Well, I, I'll quote a friend of mine who was uh, an Iranian American who was imprisoned uh, uh, by the regime uh, for, for some years uh, after he made the mistake of going to Tehran, thinking that he could achieve bridge building uh, between the US and Iran. Uh, and he said to me, not long after he'd been released, expecting this regime uh, to fall is like expecting the Soviet Union to fall in the 1950s. 
you're too early. It's not that rotten. There are still believers. And and I, I was very struck by that. And and let's face it, he, he knew whereof he spoke. His point was that in all of his time in jail, he had encountered uh, zealous belief in the ideology of the Islamic uh, revolution. And, and that's the thing that makes me somewhat pessimistic. I don't think we're anything close to the Soviet Union in the 1980s. That that may be some some time away. Mind you, HR, uh, normally you're the optimist. I'm gonna out-optimist you today. I think we shall all live to see not only the fall of this regime, but also the fall of Putin uh, in Russia. And I think the crumbling of the power of the CCP in China, I think we'll live to see that. I don't think it's gonna happen this year, but I think we'll live to see it. You know, I, I'll tell you, I, I, I agree with you, Neil. I, I agree with you. And I think on, on Iran, you know, it's important to note, right? We always skip over the the the, uh, the civil war phase of the revolution, right? This this was not a a revolution that delivered, you know, sort of a, a consensus for a theocratic dictatorship, and and uh, and you know, it was it was the revolutionaries versus the republicans, uh, and and uh, the republicans lost, and they've been losing more and more ever since. But they still exist in, in, in Iran, and so uh, many of them ex you know, live in Houston, Texas, you know, <laughs> or in Southern California. I mean, but but hey, uh, but but in Iran, still there is a strong element of the population who are in that Republican camp, right? And and the other thing that I, I want I want to call on Elon Musk at this moment and ask him, please deliver Starlinks, you know, to Iran, to China, to to North Korea. I think the most important thing we could do at this stage in this competition that we that we're in with these authoritarian uh, dictatorships is to poke holes in their firewalls, right? To give the people access to alternative sources of, of, of information. And we've seen the power of, of Starlink and bypassing these firewalls in Ukraine because it's what it's what allowed the Ukrainians to establish an alternate means of, of secure communications uh, for military purposes. But I, I really think there's tremendous application uh, for this and other technologies that can get over those get over those firewalls and, and reach people with alternative sources of information. Three days ago, uh, HR, I heard Elon Musk uh, commit to making Starlink's satellite service available in Iran. The problem is getting the terminal the hardware yeah. into Iran, because of course, in the case of Ukraine, the Ukrainians were eager uh, to get Starlink terminals in to keep their communications going after the Russian invasion. This is a different case, but I think it was highly significant that that Elon was willing to to make that commitment and then to make it publicly. Uh, so this is different in the sense that I think the Biden administration uh, and its its unlikely ally uh, SpaceX. Elon Musk are a more formidable combination than we ever saw in the Obama years. Because whether it was Russia and Ukraine or revolution in Iran, the Obama administration was extraordinarily weak in oh. its expressions of 2009 was it was just it was heart crushing to me that yeah. they didn't I mean they didn't support and that. 2014 when in the, in the yeah. end the Russians were able to annex Crimea and take part of eastern Ukraine without without really paying any significant price I think we must give credit where it's due the Biden administration is looking a lot tougher on foreign policy at this point than it than the than the Obama administration ever did and I give Jake Sullivan but it's a, it's, a, it's a low that's a low bar Neil 
know, sorry, Chuck, but you know, in, in, in the spirit of bipartisanship, I think this is a much better performance this year compared with last year when, of course, we had the debacle in Afghanistan. I, I heard Jake Sullivan speak at the weekend. He gave an extremely effective performance in answering some key questions we've discussed on this show, including the question of, of Putin's nuclear threat. And I thought he gave an extremely good answer to that one that you'd have been proud of having done that job yourself. Right. Since, uh, since Neil mentioned him a minute ago, we seemingly can't do a show without invoking Vladimir Putin in some way. So here we go. Mr. Putin is in the news this morning. He has granted Russian citizenship to Edwin Snowden, who is the former U.S. intelligence contractor who exposed uh, all kinds of secrets at the NSA, then fled to Russia. Um, congratulations, Mr. Snowden. You're 39 years old. I hope you're not going to have to take up a rifle now and fight Ukraine. Uh, it's a question I would have if I'm becoming a Russian citizen. Uh, Neil, a question for you. So Putin was on television last Last Wednesday, and he said the following to the Russian people, quote, if there is a threat to the territorial integrity of our country and in protecting our people, we will certainly use all means to us. I am not bluffing. Now, George W. Bush famously looked in Putin's eyes and saw his soul. Neil, you can read Putin's lips. Is he bluffing? Well, first of all, uh, acquiring Russian citizenship in 2022 seems to me like acquiring a badge of dishonor especially at a time when so many uh, young Russian men are trying to get the hell out right. uh, of Russia uh, to, to avoid being sucked into Putin's war. Uh, Putin's threat, which he's made uh, obliquely uh, more than once, that he could escalate to, use, uh, to the use of tactical nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. I think is a bluff. Uh, or rather, it's not a bluff, but he's going to be deterred, as President Zelensky said uh, yesterday. I think this is a correct analysis. Uh, when this question was put to Jake Sullivan over the weekend, uh, he, of course, was not uh, specific about what exactly the United States would do. We have communicated directly, privately, to the Russians at very high levels that there will be catastrophic consequences for Russia if they use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. We have been clear with them and emphatic with them that the United States will respond decisively alongside our allies and partners. And we have protected those communications, which we have done privately to the Russians, but they well understand what they would face uh, if they went down that dark road. I take that to mean, HR, I'll be interested in your views, that we would not necessarily consider a nuclear response, but we would hit the Russians with a massive uh, conventional and presumably cyber and other response. Mm -hmm. And that response would be absolutely devastating. And that is the reason why I think uh, Putin will not risk using a tactical nuclear weapon. I'm not even clear what good that would do him at this stage in the war. But that's that's my take. HR, what are your thoughts? Yeah, he, I mean, he said, I mean, you're, you're right. He, he delivered very strong messages on Face the Nation on Sunday. He said it would be catastrophic for Russia. And, and you know, we there, there are options available to President Biden that are non-nuclear that would be catastrophic to Russia. We talked about this, I think, several months ago, Neil, where in, in an episode in which I just pointed out, hey, we have to make clear to Putin that if you use a nuclear weapon, it's it's a suicide weapon, you know, and and we could ensure that is the case uh, with means short of you know uh, uh, short of of a nuclear response. And and if you just think about really Russia and how vulnerable Russian uh, you know assets and interests are, I mean, look at Transdenistra, right? Where where you think okay, Dnistria, where you where you have um, you know Russian forces that are, are a threat to Moldova. Well, they're pretty isolated. You know, look at the at the Black Sea fleet. I mean. That would take about 20 minutes to deal with. Uh, you know, how, how about uh, 
Latakia and positions in Syria or East, I mean, you know, how about the how about the situation in Belarus? How about I mean, fill in the blank, right? I mean, can you imagine the 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 the, the numbers of of difficulties we could make for Russia like right now uh, as they are overextended and kind of spent uh, in in in, uh, in in Ukraine? So you know, I think I think as as we've mentioned, as I've mentioned many times here, and we've talked about the person who should fear escalation more than than anyone else in the world vis-a-vis the, the, the war in Ukraine against Ukraine is Vladimir Putin. And I, I just want to uh, chime in on the same theme, but <laughs> slightly different points. I agree uh, it, it's a bluff for a couple of reasons. One, notice Putin isn't already doing a lot of things he could do. So um, we talk about the oil, he shut off the oil pipeline. Um, we should give some credence to the propaganda that says he did it because he couldn't get the parts to make the damn thing work because of the sanctions. There's a second oil pipeline, uh, a gas pipeline running through Ukraine to Europe and gas is flowing nicely through that pipeline. So even the idea that he's using gas as a weapon is an open one. He is not targeting uh, places where NATO is training Ukrainian troops. He's very careful. Uh, you know, he could lob missiles into, into Polish bases. Uh, so he's, he's not now doing all the things he could do. A nuclear weapon, uh, I've been reading some interesting things about them, which I hope HR will uh, give us some more technical on what it does. A tactical nuclear weapon makes a big bang in a small place. <clears throat> uh, it is not useful as a weapon of terrorism. Let's be clear, right now, Putin's strategy is he's losing in the battlefield. So he's going to try to do what Germany tried to do in the Blitz in London and the US Air Force tried to do in Germany which is to terrorize the civilian population into not supporting a regime. And we know from history that never works. Um, nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons are sp- pretty bad at this. <clears throat> Ukraine doesn't have highly, it's not useful militarily. There aren't big concentrations of troops that he could, he could hit with it. It doesn't, a tactical nuclear weapon doesn't destroy a city. So it's even not, not even particularly good as terrorism. And it would be the Pearl Harbor. I think it is abundantly clear for all of us um, that even a, a useless tactical nuclear weapon by sending the nuclear weapon up, that pulls the gloves off. And we should give thanks that our situation is so much better than it was at the outbreak of World War I and World War II. Um, if US, I think it's abundantly clear what the Russian army is right now. And if the US and NATO pulled the gloves off, this war could be over in three days. Um, you know, put, put HR and the US, you know, let's just start giving giving them air defenses. Let's put NATO airplanes over the skies of Ukraine. Uh, if we wanted to, we could roll into Moscow in a week. Uh, the overwhelming uh, advantage in conventional forces that NATO has is, I think, uh, that that is both a fact and, and that is, of course, the response. No, we're not going to murder millions of Russians with strategic nuclear weapons, but we are going to actually start fighting this war and it would be over very quickly. And that's that's a a wonderful situation to be in compared to you know World War One and World War Two, that that is just waiting. Before we get too carried away with one, let me just say this: this ends. Where does this end? This has to end with Putin losing, uh, and that's uh, you know how does Putin lose uh, with or without a palace coup is a, is the interesting question. Well, that's what I was going to say, John, because at the moment, although we are giving the Ukrainians enough weaponry and financial support to prevent them losing the war. I don't think we're giving them enough uh, to win the war. There's a window of opportunity uh, right now, uh, but it's not going to stay open uh, indefinitely. And that window of opportunity exists because the Russian army has suffered such heavy casualties, is clearly in a state of demoralization. If Ukraine had 
significant armor, and this is right up your street, IHR, then their offensive operations in Kherson would be quite likely to succeed. They don't, and that's why they're making relatively slow progress in the south. The Russians still have a significant advantage in artillery. And when I look at the situation, and I've been pondering this a lot over the weekend, what I see is a rather unsatisfactory state of affairs in which Ukraine uh, is courageously uh, pushing uh, the Russians back, but can't really decisively kick them out of the south of the country because we are not su uh, sufficiently arming them. At the same time, the Ukrainian uh, economy, as I think I mentioned the last time we talked about this, is in a very weak state and they are not getting sufficient financial support, particularly from the EU countries. So I worry a little bit about where we'll be in just a few months' time. Clearly, it's going to take Putin a long time to ra recruit new, uh, new armies and train those soldiers. Uh, it'll take many months before there really is a significant reinforcement uh, of the Russian invasion force. But I'm not sure we're doing to enough to take advantage of that opportunity to let Ukraine defeat Russia decisively, particularly in the south of the country. HR, do they need tanks? Hey, Neil, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, of course, you know, try to think of any problem you can't solve with a tank, is what I'd say, right? I mean, so, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, uh, of course, the range of capabilities they need are you know mobile protected firepower and, and the ability to move infantry under armor. And this is it applies to Kursan, as you mentioned, but even more in, in the north where you have the opportunity for more open maneuverability, especially after the, the ground freezes. And and this creates opportunities to penetrate defenses because it's such a vast area. You can't, the, the Russians just can't defend everywhere. So once you make a penetration, though, Right. You've got you've got to be able to sustain the momentum of that offensive and then consolidate gains as you go along. And that that's you know, development of additional capacity, the size of the Ukrainian force. But now what I'm, we're starting to see, and, and again, we call for this like in in March you know, of this year is intermediate range air defenses. Right. And I mentioned a French and Italian system back then. I forget what episode it was. But but, you know, we now now Ukraine is finally getting these intermediate range systems. It's a joint program developed by uh, by Norway and, and the US. And, and that's gonna be very significant and important, especially as Russia has been bolstering their capabilities with these Iranian drones and some of these suicide Iranian drones. So the battle for the air is still ongoing, right? And of course, you know, air, air supremacy is important for an offensive because a maneuver formation concentrated to defeat a defending enemy is vulnerable to air, air and fires. And then also what's extremely important at this stage is long range surveillance capability with a lot of endurance. And this is the like the American made MQ-9 Reaper. I mean, we're talking about gray eagles. Okay, gray eagles are great, right? But but how about MQ-9 Reapers? I mean, th what that would do is it would allow these, these aircraft to operate over Ukrainian airspace and see past Crimea into, into the Black Sea. Then what you do is you combine that with various forms of ATACMs, especially the the long range uh, variety of, of of the of these systems that we've been providing, I mean, so I I think take take the gloves off now. I think you're right. This is a fleeting window of opportunity, and I reject the conventional wisdom that the more that Ukraine succeeds, the more dangerous the situation becomes. The most dangerous situation would be if, if Russia could claim uh, some sort of victory here and, and our will buckles. And I don't see that happening. I feel good about the situation, but I think you're absolutely right that the time is now to stop taking counsel of our fears and help the Ukrainians 
uh, win this fight, which 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 is regaining at least the territory taken since February 24th, and, and then and then suing for peace on favorable terms. No, final question, guys. Thanks. We got to go here. Um, we have referenced five entities on this show right now. Let me recite them to you. And Neil, I want you to tell me which of these is the most endangered species and which is the most thriving species. Liz Truss, Georgia Maloney, the theocracy in Iran, Vladimir Putin, and since we gave passing mention to him and he was the subject of crazy coup rumors over the weekend, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is much safer than those crazy rumors suggested. There was never any substance to that. He looks to me to be in the driving seat in Beijing, and I don't expect the party congress to be anything other than a Xi Jinping thought love fest. Uh, I'd say the person in the most vulnerable position uh, on the list is in fact Liz Truss, because the position of prime minister, particularly conservative prime minister, is entirely dependent on the goodwill of of conservative MPs. Uh, And they have become uh, as volatile a a group of, of people in politics as you'll find in any democracy in the world. John, agree or disagree? Um, Liz Trust is the most vulnerable because she is the least important. <laughs> uh, if she loses, another conservative's in for a while, there's another election. We talk about tax rates, maybe 42% instead of 40% or 45%. And, you know, gradually, slowly but surely, the West comes to grips with the fact of the, the supply problem in economics and, and all the other problems of our politics. Putin is the most consequential, I think, because... Um, I agree entirely with HR. The best thing is every Russian out of Ukraine now while the momentum's hot, uh, back to the borders that we promised to enforce in the 1990s. Then Putin loses. Now, now Soviet Union lost in Afghanistan. They didn't immediately go under because of that. But the rest of the world is watching. And um, the Iranians, uh, Xi Jinping, um, and uh, all the rest of it, all the southern border, the Indians, everyone's looking. And when Putin loses, I think that has an immense salutary effect on everybody else uh, on the axis of evil here being in more trouble. And and people, you know, people want to back the winner and they're going to realize that side ain't winning and, and join the side that is. So I think I'm, I'm voting for Putin as being the, the linchpin, the most vulnerable and most consequential because it makes all the other ones more vulnerable too. HR, you get the last word. Yeah, I, I agree with John, and I think I think Maloney's going to surprise everyone with her with her staying power. I mean, I think I just been you know reading her speeches and watching her and and her and listening to her personal story, uh, and, and I, I think that uh, you know I think that she is it will personify the strength of democracies relative to these authoritarian figures, which who are in a really difficult position right now. These dictators are in a tough spot. You know, and and just I mean, just go, go back a year ago from now, nobody would have thought that, right? Everybody was lamenting the demise of democracy and and uh, and and uh, and portraying these authoritarian regimes as in many ways superior to our democratic form of governance. Well, you know, how's that working out? And we will leave it there for this episode. Uh, but don't worry, we'll be back soon with another episode of Goodfellows. Uh, to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to the show. Get friends to subscribe to you and rate, for, rate us as well. We like to get lots of stars. Also, go to hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. Anytime Neil, John, and HR are in the news, writing or commenting on something, you'll find out. On behalf of the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, HR McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we hope you enjoyed today's show. We'll see you soon. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.